automatic timer up. Dali Ali slips it through. Lucas Moura has scored! Welcome to Through the Thirds podcast with your host, Alistair Feezy. Hi guys, hope you're all well. Today we have Liam Mason on the podcast, who is currently the Senior Athletic Performance Coach for Blackburn Rovers Football Club. Now, I've known Liam for well over five years now. He has a phenomenal insight within strength and conditioning within the pro game, and I was very excited to pick his brain. I hope you enjoy this one. Hi Liam, thanks a lot for coming on. Welcome to Through the Thirds podcast. If you want to mind just introducing yourself and um, telling us what you what you're currently doing. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Fees. Um, I'm first team fitness coach at the moment at Blackburn Rovers in the Championship. I've been there six years now. Um, started as an intern and then just worked my way up to first team. So went intern, uh, then got a full time role, um, and then with the 23s the under-23s and then into the first team. Before that, I was with Cardiff City um, with the academy. I had an internship there. And then I also did some stuff with the university uh, football team as their fitness coach. We'll just get straight into it, really. We're going to focus on kind of planning a training week. So what do you feel are the key areas that you take into consideration when, when planning that training week? Obviously now and then you've got pre-COVID as well. Yeah, I think the, the principles generally stay the same in terms of that training week. Of First, you have to identify what your constraints are. So where are your games? Do you have one game weeks, two game weeks? Um, from a coaching perspective, how much training do you want to get in? How many sessions? Um, and then do you want to do double sessions? How many days off do you want? Uh, what's the stage of the season? How old your squad are? Have you got a young and a an old squad you may plan that week a little bit different but I think just generally the principles are if you take a a one game week let's say you play on a Saturday you got match day plus one and two is your recovery phase so Sunday and Monday your aim is to just maximize your recovery and then match day minus three and minus four what we call the development phase so that's where you can overload the players a little bit more so that would be a Tuesday and a Wednesday on the Saturday to Saturday week. And then just the two days prior to your game, so the Thursday and Friday, you start to just drop off and that's what we'd call a taper phase. And the aim there is to just freshen the the players up, ready for that Saturday game. Um, And I think once you get those principles, then you can start to adjust based off, maybe you play a a two-game week and if it's a Saturday, Tuesday, they always, that, those principles always stay the same. So you don't actually have a development phase in that uh, Saturday, Tuesday week. So you've got your Sunday and Monday is your recovery phase slash taper phase. Um, Your Wednesday, Thursday after the Tuesday game is your recovery phase. And then the Friday just becomes your taper. So if you, you have a period and that's, we play in the championship with 46 games a season. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. You get quite a few Saturday, Tuesday games, and you you often go three or four weeks where you don't have a 
typical development uh, training set from a physical perspective uh, training session in there um, with the starting players. Now the non-starters will be a little bit different. And then that's, that brings another challenge of just trying to uh, manage those so that you're playing Saturday, Tuesdays. If you stay with the same team for a three or four week period of that, then you, your subs or non-starters will start to fall behind if you don't uh, increase their load and, and have some development work into them. Right. Yes. How how has it changed coming into um, COVID? Obviously, principles have stayed the same, or training weeks days stayed the same. Obviously, you haven't had games yet, but we have one. But yeah, the, the print. I mean, the physical principles stay the same. It, COVID presents some different challenges in terms of uh, social distancing and some of the things that uh, we could and couldn't do when we first came back. There was some constraints placed placed on us, so we, we couldn't have contact training. Um, so we couldn't do possessions and small-sided games. It was a lot of technical practices. We had to social distance during those practices. Um, but generally, those principles of obviously there was no games, and we've had a three-week build-up to the first game. We've got our first game on Saturday. We've just had, or we've just finished our third week um, of training where there, there has been no games. We played one friendly game. Uh, last week, but um, we, we've not had those recovery taper phases of match day plus and minus one and two. Um, so we've we've been able to get after the players quite a bit from a, a physical development perspective. I mean, they had ten weeks off or away from the training ground. They had programs that they went away and did, but and they've come back in good shape. A lot of uh, PBs on the, the fitness test we did in the first week with them. Um, body fats are good. And it was to be expected, to be fair. Usually in the off-season, they're going away and they've got holidays booked and they enjoy themselves. And psychologically, they, they should do that. But I think being in lockdown for 10 weeks, it, there was nothing else to do other than to get fit. So we probably expected them to come back in the shape that they did. Um, and that... That's allowed us really to to not have to push them too hard in, in these three weeks. I mean, we've got a period of nine games in 42 days. So we, we have to get them up to speed quickly from a, a match uh, fitness perspective. Um, but we've, we've been able to, I mean, four weeks going into that first game, we've, we've had the time to be able to do that. Um, and that first... 10 days I think it was where it was non-contact actually helped us to just ease them back into training and into football specific movements they did a lot of straight line running in the in the lockdown period and just general aerobic uh, conditioning and then coming back in a lot of change of direction accelerations decelerations um, but the first 10 days of that those technical practices allowed us to just reintroduce them um in quite a controlled way and then going into the before going into those possessions and games so it's, it's been quite nice actually so you ramped it up quite well hopefully going into that first game was it tough not Maybe having not um hard. players in their kind of specific their specific positions because i know you i remember you mentioned you had to mix it up because of covid yeah a, li a little bit i mean 
I think the initial plan really or the initial thing you, you get told you we had to work in groups of five um, so we had five groups of five players um, and initially you're thinking right, well let's get the uh, defenders together let's get the midfielders let's get the strikers and we'll do some good unit technical practices with them for the first 10 days and then you think well if one of them fails a test and you then have to uh, self-isolate and you're risking that the rest of those people in that group are also um, catching the virus. So, And then you end up maybe going into the first game with all your strikers having had 10 days off. Um, and so we then mixed the groups up and we, we had made sure that there was different positions in in those groups um, and that presented some challenges maybe but offered some opportunities in terms of we could have some uh, passing patterns you know if you've got a centre midfielder playing out to a fullback or you've got some nines and tens there then getting into the box for the cross from the fullback it allowed some nice passing patterns um, rather than it just being your standard uh, technical mannequin passing drills yeah, that's definitely um, created some challenges, but you probably learned a lot through it in a way. Yeah, it was. You, do you think you could see you doing that more with um, not just physicians? I think probably what it's um, what I liked about it is that it what you tend to get in the, the pre-season period. So after a six, seven-week layoff, is you come back in and everyone's really keen to get going. Um, you've only got a six-week pre-season for that first game, usually. And you, you can probably rush jumping in and, and having too many uh, possessions and games in the first week or so. Um, and you start to get quite a lot of groin, uh, adductor-type hip groin um, injuries from the, the change of directions that they're not used to. Um, whereas just doing less volume of that stuff at the start helped us to not pick up those hip groin injuries in those first 10 days. So um, maybe there is a, a case in the first, when you come back into pre-season, uh, to just hold off a little bit from the, the small side of games, the, the possession, not hold off completely, but just minimise the volume a little bit and start to do a little bit more of your... Uh, passing patterns with them. Yeah, that's an interesting point, to be honest. So how um, how often do you do kind of isolated conditioning work? And do you feel how... I, I had a um, webinar with um, Renato Paiva yesterday from Benfica. Right. His, kind of, his kind of philosophy was essentially pretty much kept stressing like stay out of the gym almost because their principle for specificity, say working on speed... You know they can do that on the field. So what what do you feel was important for? Um, so, so should we ever do it? Kind of isolated conditioning work. Yeah, for me, definitely you you have to. So if you take that uh, period of um, that Saturday Tuesday example that I spoke about um, yeah. with the with the subs, in order to get those subs up to speed or up to the same level as what the Saturday, Tuesday uh, lads will get the same amount of volume. 
you're gonna at some point so if, if we just give some specific examples on a a saturday tuesday the sunday generally the, the starters will do um a recovery session and stay inside and the non-starters will do an extra um an extra session um and that'll be the top-up group and you can get a lot hopefully you get as much football into them as possible there from a conditioning perspective but it may be that the day before if you just went sunday top-up group let's say you get six seven k max into them because you're also in that uh taper phase you're playing on tuesday and some of those players may have to play for you um so you can't go too high with them so you you're getting seven k into them there the then going into monday day before the game you can't get any extra uh football work into them there or conditioning work into them then they play or then there's the game. Let's say they don't play in that game. Um, so they've got a, a day of not doing anything there. Then Wednesday would generally in that week be a day off. Thursday, then you're back into that uh, minus match day minus two and taper phase and going into the Saturday. So you'll, you'll top them up a little bit on the Thursday, but you'll still be... Um, you'll still be a little bit wary of doing too much because they might have to play if you're on the Saturday. And so on that the saturday game after the game and the tuesday top up after the game um i think it's just an doing some isolated conditioning work is an efficient way you only get 15 minutes with them after on the pitch um at the stadium after the after the game and to get some good work into them um it is probably best done from an isolated uh running perspective um now, isolated conditioning has its advantages in that you can um, set the work-rest ratios, you can set the intensity, you can set the volumes, the distances that they're running um, can all be managed more easily than it can in a games-based conditioning approach. Now, that's an advantage, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that should be the reason that you do it. Um, I per, personally, I'm, my my preference is to go games-based conditioning, um, but at times isolated conditioning has some value as well um, for those reasons that that I've given. Yeah, do you feel yeah. more in pre-season? Yeah, and and again, in that first ten days. So, for me to overload the players on a in the first 10 days from a, a football uh, perspective and, and do some games-based conditioning by maybe doing some 5v5 for four sets of four minutes, which is your standard um, Jens Bangsbo uh, conditioning um, methodology, then if they're not ready for that in those first 10 days, and that's when you'll start to get those hip groin issues. Um, so if you can... Yeah have some more um more controlled um isolated conditioning runs in those first 10 days to ease them back in alongside doing some maybe lower volume possession and, and small-sided game practices i think it's probably a safer way of doing it um in those first 10 days of pre-season yeah, yeah. 
So then throughout the week, you, then you do light kind of gym work. And then, so from, a, from an off-pitch perspective, from a gym perspective, I, I do think there is, that for me, there's definitely value in doing uh, gym-based work. So I, I don't feel, I mean, it's, it is quite a, um, a European um a european philosophy to to not do that uh gym based work um or it tends to be anyway in that you can get everything from the training session i'm not i'm not sure you can um so when a from a an overload from a specificity perspective yeah of course you can because there's nothing as specific as playing football but from a, a pure overload perspective and uh force production and, and force absorption i think there is some value of, of uh some isolated strength gym-based work there um and so so if you look at like if you take the hamstring for example or the, the set of hamstrings then um players yes the, a really good way to condition hamstrings is by sprinting but that's not the only way to um, or the only way that should be done. You also need a level of um, force capability in those hamstring muscles. And um, if you tested, so there's a lot of research out there from the Nord board in terms of hamstrings that if you're above 400 newtons on a on the Nord board, so in a Nordic exercise, that you're at a decreased risk of getting a hamstring strain injury. And we get we would test quite a lot of players or all our players on the Nord board and they would be you would have maybe 30 percent of the squad um in pre-season that are below that 400 newtons and so that shows that football isn't enough to provide that protective mechanism to protect the hamstrings from um those saturday tuesday 46 games a season um of for the hamstrings and so you then need an extra gym-based overload stimulus to, to try and increase that uh, force production capability of, of that muscle group, for example. Right, interesting. So, you're, so in a way, you're, you're saying that um, gym-based is more for injury prevention? And performance as well. So yeah. You, yeah. You, you, have to, um, you have to just analyse each individual. And yeah. you will have some individuals that um, will be really uh, quick and powerful, but will just have no uh, strength foundation. Um, and so in order to improve them further performance-wise, if you increase their force production capability, then that gives them a greater, um, a greater capacity for increased skill or increased skill of uh sprinting for example um whereas you may have someone who on the other hand is really strong in the gym um but they're not very good they're not very quick they're, they're not good at changing direction they're not very agile um and so that's when you need to have more of a specific skill-based intervention with those people and you just you need to assess each individual on on their merits yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. Interesting, man. Um, you didn't pull a hamstring the other day when you were a linesman, though. 
<laughs> no, fortunately, not a not a hamstring. Um, although my my groins were pretty sore at the end of it, and my my head as well after the constant complaints of getting decisions wrong. How was it? <laughs> I remember I saw the picture. It looked pretty. It was. I was laughing. It was. Um, it was an experience. It gave me a newfound respect for linesmen. Anyway. <laughs> I'm just glad there weren't 50,000 uh, fans there. Right. Scouts is having a go at you. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, you've studied tactical variation and kind of know, you know the ins and outs of that. Uh, um, how, do you, how do you periodize a week with, say, one game? Um, do you ensure you cover all kind of four moments of the game or do you do two and two or kind of base it upon what what um, what that team needs in that kind of week or coming up to yeah, the so, Yeah, um, you would say, oh, certainly from our perspective, the coaches, um, so the, the co- ultimately the coaches make that decision about how they plan the technical, tactical stuff into the practices. Um, generally, they are looking at how we played on the in the previous game and who we're playing in the next game and we'll then include practices in that training week based off our principles um, of what they want to see on the Saturday um, in those four moments but also areas that they've identified that may be important based off who we're playing um, and potentially on how we did in the previous game as well. They may need to reinforce some principles that um, they seen were areas for development from the previous game. Yeah. But I think all all moments will be in in the, in the training week. So if we're working on um, the in-possession um, moment, there will also be a transition element in the practices our coaches are pretty good at making sure that there's the transition moments are always there so um if we're working on uh, out of possession there will be some transition element and some uh bonus for the defensive team if they win the ball back they will then be um an aim for that team in the practice yeah definitely i think i mean you have one kind of specific moment you'll focus on but always else it's not football about the four moments right yeah yeah I think you always need an element of transition yeah. in the practices um, so what would you say kind of relating to almost Raymond Bahajan I know you like him a lot your principles for developing football fitness are they related to his or do you kind of have your own or yeah I, from a conditioning perspective I I think Raymond is excellent at um it's helped me to probably relate a lot of sports science jargon to football coaches that don't have that background um especially I, I think he simplifies it really well um so he would say that his like four principles of developing football fitness are to increase the quality of the football action would be his first one so um let's say if we if we take a one v one attacking for example, make the quality of that one v one um attacking 
practice extreme make that better than it currently is from both a technical perspective and a physical perspective so make it quicker um and just a, a higher quality technical uh aspect to it that would be the first element to increasing that quality of the action then the next uh thing you would look at would be increasing the frequency of the action so let's say you know a, a 30 second period trying to have more 1v1 uh jewels in there um then his next one would be to maintain the quality of the action so if you've developed a high quality uh football action that each time you do it again so you've you've had a high quality football action you've then increased the frequency of the action making sure that the 10th time you do it or so the 10th time you do the 1v1 or the 10th time you press um, is still the same quality as it was the first time and it hasn't gone from 100% down to 95, down to 90 and then the 10th time we're down at 65% of um, where, it, where it should be um, from the start. And then the final point would be to maintain that frequency. So can you, let's say you, Let's say you can have uh, 10 football actions in a minute. You have a player who can complete 10 football actions in a minute. So that could be pressing, uh, playing a pass, tackling, defending 1v1, attacking 1v1, whatever it is, accelerate and change of direction. So you can do 10 in a minute. So the aim then is to increase the frequency of that to get him to be able to do 12, 15 in a minute. Um, all while maintaining the same quality so that there's no drop off so they can do 15 actions a minute and they are all the same quality um, and it's not gone from that 100% to 60% and that they can do uh, 15, 15 football actions a minute but they can do them for 90 minutes as well and it hasn't gone from 15 actions a minute in the first minute and then by that 90th minute of the match they're only able to do six football actions and that ultimately that's what we see in in football in the final 15 minutes of each half there is a drop-off in intensity um and it's the job of the coaches and the, the fitness coaches to make sure that we're conditioning the players to be able to play a, a high um high match physical output for the whole game yeah, like keeping that freshness in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. I did a course on his uh, individual training within team training. Yeah, I don't know if you've if you've done that one either. But he kind of he, he, his big focus is on ensuring de you're developing the communication rather than like communication, decision, execution. Yeah, developing and, that. And that would, so like he would be against isolated training for that reason and that makes complete sense that yeah. and that's the the same as tactical periodization as well is that there should always it should always be in relation to the game there should always be a technical uh aspect a tactical aspect and a, a physical aspect and they're all um ingrained and, and interwined and um that's what like, i think we spoke about before tactical periodization is a mix of uh, teaching games for understanding constraints-led approach and games-based conditioning because all aspects are combined 
Um, and that's the same as what Raymond um, talks about as well. Um, and I think I, I think there's very few football clubs around now that will just be using um, isolated conditioning as a, as their method for developing fitness. I think you see the proliferation now of just small-sided games in in all team sports. Like rugby is the same. They use that as the um, the preferred method of conditioning because it's such an efficient way to do it. Um, yeah. But I, I I just think that there are times, um, specific times when there is some value for just doing some isolated runs. Yeah, I feel. I mean, I feel it's an ongoing debate in the last couple of years. I feel just seeing it on Twitter and all over. Um, but yeah, no, I know. I feel it's important uh, being a youth coach. I feel it's important being at the older ages, having that sometimes the isolated tactical kind of passing stuff like that. But because it's, I think it's important for recovering things. But in the youth yeah. level, I feel. I feel the, the opposed way is more to go the more opposed way and, and because just when you see I've done it like tested it with players and things like that and it's just you just see a drop off in the quality and the focus and as soon as you add opposition it's completely different yeah I mean from that perspective from like a um, a technical perspective if we go yeah. away from the, from the conditioning a little bit then um of course, I, I mean, that's the whole thing from a constraints-led approach, that the more specific um, you can be with the skill, the better the transfer will be. It's yeah. just there's always that caveat of if you ha- have a player who cannot uh, play a pass with his weaker foot, then by adding someone in who is going to put him under pressure, he's still not going to be able to play a pass with his weaker foot, and he may just need lots of repetitions at performing that coordinative uh, skill of just against the wall, a ball on a, a wall or a ball on a, a man in unopposed, just passing with his left foot. And then once he gets to a certain level, then yeah, I'd, I'd say I'd you know, definitely add a defender in there and someone who's going to press him and he has to make a decision. Um, but I think until you get to that point, it almost becomes a bit redundant because he's never going to be able to do it if he doesn't have that foundational skill in the first place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a mix is important. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't learn to chip a ball from doing it straight away in a game, you know? You just, yeah. You, like, find a little... Say you're playing Kirby, you chip it onto the curb. And that, I mean, that's unopposed little games, isn't it? But it's getting yeah. creative. I think unopposed is more... Comes out more when, when you're being creative... And then you're going to put that into a game. It's like, you know, once you... I think it's the same with anything, isn't it? Yeah. It's like people go to extremes of you're either on this side or you're on this side. And as as with everything, it's generally the the right answer is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel opposed for you. But the youth, they they need that little bit of unopposed. You know that that's on their own during yeah. during like sessions and things like that with coaches. I think it's important to do more unopposed when they're getting their decisions. Decisions. 
but it's like you said, it's it's you know mix of both, and everyone has their own opinion on it anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Liam, to finish us off, mate, have you got a book to recommend that you've been? I guess you've been reading loads over this time, but any books you recommend? Uh, yeah, I think in your kind of area or anything, you know, anything not. I think from um, a football, like planning the training week, from a football fitness perspective, uh, Raymond Verheyen's uh, periodization um, book is excellent. Um, and the ta- so tactical periodization books, the, I've read a few of those. And I really like the Pedro Mendoza one, which is, um, he does a, a practical example of uh, Jupp Hanks's Bayern Munich from, from I think it's 2013-14 season maybe. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's good because he gives practical examples that, that a lot of the tactical periodization um, books, because it's translated from Portuguese, often contains a lot of complex terminology for stuff that isn't that complex. Um, yeah. and having that practical element of how you can apply those principles I found really helpful um, another one that does that is Carlos Calvajal's um, that you can only get that on an ebook but I, I can't remember what it's called but that was a good one again at the start you're reading it and it's really complex and then he shows you um, how he applies those principles and, and you get it yeah, yeah they, really they've been the books yeah, I've ended up rereading a lot of those this time. It's helped a lot, but like, I'm I'm similar to you. You need I need some practical examples to see what what they're talking about because it's quite scientific and in depth, isn't it? Yeah, and it just it just doesn't translate very well um, into English. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, thanks a lot, mate, for coming on. I appreciate it. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. hope you enjoyed the pod with Liam Mason from Blackburn Rovers. I included the book recommendations in the notes section so this is easily accessible for you. Please share the podcast with any colleagues or friends. I do love hearing feedback and that is much, much, much appreciated. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe. That would be fantastic. I'll see you again and take care. Thank you.